We look at Australia from over here and we think, yeah, it's amazing and how lucky are we for everyone back back home. Um, but it is a concern, like what happens if something happened to us over here, we just can't come back. Today on Dirty Linen, we are doing something that I wish I could do in real life and that is go to France. We are talking to Andrew Pryor, who people might remember from his stint on MasterChef in 2013, but he's been living in France since 2016. Uh, his business Queenie's Food Tours still continued in Melbourne, but then Andrew went off to be absolutely fabulous in France, running food tours over there. Uh, things have been, I guess, a little bit curtailed over the last year and a bit, but we are really happy to be catching up with you, Andrew, as France starts to reopen again. Welcome to Dirty Linen. Oh, thank you, Danny, so much for having me, and we wish we could have you over here as well. It's... Uh... Yes, yeah, it's been troubling times, uh, but not just for France, but for everybody. So we can't, um, we just have to move on, I guess. But yes, it's great to have everything reopening again here. Yeah, well, tell us what it's been like running a food tourism business through a pandemic. Well, pretty quiet. Um, you have to, like everybody, I, I'm an avid listener and um I've, many people have to pivot and I have to do the same thing. It took a while. I think um, uh, it's been a tough time uh, the last year uh, for all of us, but um, especially for me, we moved from Paris to the French countryside, luckily just before the pandemic started um, with a dream of uh, doing cooking classes and tours here uh, in the French country where I'm living now, but um, that just had to change. I feel for... the. The biggest thing for me really is the I feel for all the people that we go to on the tours. Um, you know, they're just not being able to open restaurants, hotels, um, other tourism operators, food businesses, etc. just lost all their business overnight. It's just been terrible. Uh, it's, it is so devastating and it's really hard to think about France and the French countryside without those charming restaurants and, you know, the, you know, the bakeries and, you know, there's beautiful businesses that just seems such fixtures to think about the upheaval and the heartbreak that's been going on is, yeah, really distressing. And of course, France has been hit really hardly with COVID cases and death. Um, so that's something that we've luckily been mostly shielded from in Australia. So it just, yeah, I mean, what has it been like seeing, um, yeah, just being a witness to all of that and being part of it? Yeah, it's strange because, you know, um, you we have all our friends back in Australia and we see through social media and, and family back there as well, of course, and um, we see through calling and speaking to them through social media, et cetera, what's happening back there and, here we are in France when they had this lockdown uh, just after Christmas, the original, um, uh, they originally told us that we would open things up again in when it hit five, numbers hit 5,000 um, a day. Whoa. Uh, oh, my God. Uh, here we are. We're easing restrictions and numbers are 19,000, 17,000 a day. So they've had to revise those plans. Partly it's because pe more people are vaccinated, which is great, but still only, I think it's um, the last time I checked, it's only about 22 million, I think, uh, people have been vaccinated. 
here in France. So it's still not um, anywhere near the likes of other countries around the world that are opened up. So I think it's it's difficult. How do you – they just opened on the 19th of May restaurants, uh, terraces. Uh, so you're only allowed to have terraces open. Um, and to see pictures out of Paris, uh, I don't know how I would feel if I was living in Paris at the moment because you're all locked up in little apartments and then the idea is that, you know, a, a terrace or a cafe in Paris is like your backyard. It's where you go to. It's where you get outside of your um, workplace and out of your um, little apartment. So that's where everybody is and there's amazing scenes of people just, you know, sitting around tables right next to it. They're, they're absolutely packed, the terraces. And we sort of sit back here and look at that and go, mm, I don't know if I could do that. Uh, they're not wearing they're not wearing masks, you know, uh, when they're there because they don't have to because they're sitting down at a terrace. I just think of times when I've sat in a Paris cafe on the terrace of a cafe and had somebody's smoke go past because I'm a non-smoker and thought, oh, I don't want to sit here because somebody's smoking. Um, you know, if somebody sneezes, do they think the same thing? Oh, I don't want to sit here because somebody sneezed. I don't know. It's the kind of reaction I would have. I don't know if I would be able to yeah, sit in a Paris cafe tomorrow or the next day um, until everything a little bit back to normal. Yeah, look, I really hear you. And if you say 22 million people have been vaccinated, so France's population is up around 70 million. So it's sort of getting up towards a third, but that is in no way what you need for herd immunity. So it's still in a pretty perilous situation. And I, I had no idea that there were still that many cases in France. That is absolutely terrifying when you think everybody here I mean, Australia is very different to France, but, you know, when you think that we freak out when there's one case, um, it's uh, a very different situation. But at the same time, you can't lock down forever. Uh, so, I mean, I'm sure these are the <laughs> it's these kinds of conversations that, that, that are happening. You can't lock down forever, but at the same time, if it's not safe to open, what do you do? And I guess you look for those compromises like let's all sit on a terrace, but at the same time, yes, of course, you know, just as the Gaulois wafts past, so will a little bit of COVID. And, um, yeah, I, I wouldn't feel safe either. Um, have you been able to get vaccinated? So, yes, luckily, um, we ha I have. Um, uh, luckily for me, I'm slightly overweight. Um, <laughs> or what did I once say to her? I went to a doctor once uh, here in France, the first doctor actually I ever went to, and uh, um, he said, uh, I said, you know, I, I feel that, you know, maybe you should check my blood pressure. I haven't had my blood pressure checked in a while, etc. because you have to tell a doctor in France to do these things. Um, often it's not like you just go for a checkup. And uh, he said, he said um, I said, you know, I do, I'm a, uh, I think that, you know, check blood pressure, etc., cholesterol maybe. And he says, well, I said, he says, do you drink a lot or do you eat a lot of French, a lot of cheese and things like that? And I said, well, yes. He said, yes, because you are fat. And I'm thinking, oh, no, I'm not. <laughs> You need to go to Australia. I thought, oh, I'm just a big boy. For I'm not, I'm not exactly obese. Um, so it was uh, very funny. So in that regards, though, it uh, did sort of put me into getting the vaccine a little bit early. So um, that was a good thing. So we've had our first shot here. Um, but I think that's also partly because we're in the French countryside. It's a lot less people out here and um, people are sort of 
they're a little bit hesitant at first to get the vaccine, um, but now they're sort of really coming to the party and most people are getting it. So, yeah, so we get our second jab at the in June. And then I think it'll be a little bit more of a relief. Uh, but there's still some things that, I don't know, I just don't know about the idea of doing. Um, you know, the idea of uh, the, when the restaurants reopen, which I think is going to be the 9th of July, that they will reopen, that you can sit inside. And, but then it's with limited numbers. So, but re things like museums, some of them are open, some of them aren't. Um, the cinemas are all open, but I just don't know about the idea of going into a cinema um, at the moment. So it's still this psyche in your head that it's big spaces. Uh, we watched Eurovision the other night and, um, and uh, such a shame Switzerland didn't win. But we watched Eurovision the other night and the idea of going to Eurovision and sitting in the stadium with all those people, oh, it's just not something I can, whereas this time two years ago, I would have been all over it. I would have been there in a heartbeat. But uh, now it's just, yeah, it's just in the back of your mind. I think there are, there are the safety considerations, but then there is all that also the psychological barriers of, you know, oh, I don't know if I, I don't know if I'm the person that does that anymore. And I think, um, you know, when it's been such a long time yeah, away from people. I've been hearing this a lot from the US at the moment as, as things start to reopen there, that there are just a lot of people who aren't feeling like rushing back out there, not necessarily because they don't feel safe, but that just doesn't feel like a thing that they do. Yeah, and I worry about how that affects, as a, as a person that's been in tourism, I worry about how that affects people going away and travelling. I've, I've been saying this for a while for the la over the last year is that at the end of all of this that there'll be this big boom because I think that there will be these people that um, the people that are sitting there going, oh, I really want to travel, I really want to travel, I can't wait and I go. Um, there's been examples of that here already when, um, when we were in lockdown in France but Spain wasn't. People, the French, were, when they were allowed to, were going to Spain and just going there because they could go to a bar or a restaurant and they weren't able to do that here. I mean, restaurants haven't been open since October last year. So there's that psyche of people that just want to go and do that. But then there's, um, and will be, as soon as they're allowed to travel, they'll be off. But then there'll be many people that will be going, well, I don't know if I really want to take that risk. And even though I'm vaccinated, um, do I want to go to a country and I feel I want to wear a mask, but nobody else is going to be wearing masks? So I don't know. I remember in Australia when I was doing, um, in Melbourne when I was doing Queenie's food tours, that I would often see um, people from Singapore or from um, Korea wearing masks uh, in the streets of Melbourne and people would remark about that on the tour, that, you know, that, oh, why are they wearing masks? And it's like, well, now I know exactly why. So I They were sensible. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know if that's, do I want to, if I went back to, say, for even example, Australia, I know that there's no virus there, but for me, I feel comfortable wearing a mask now outside in public. When I go to Paris, am I going to be, and everybody's not wearing masks anymore, am I still going to be comfortable to go through the metro without one? I don't know. I think my psyche has definitely changed.
Mm, well, it's funny you say that we are still wearing masks on public transport in Melbourne, where I am, and I actually quite enjoy putting my mask on. It's just, I don't know, it's funny. Um, I went to the footy the other day and I kept my mask on while I was walking up the concourse, um, you know, towards my seat, and that felt all right as well. But yeah, um, most people weren't, and that's, you know, that's fine. That wasn't a requirement. But yeah, it is, it is funny how you um, make your own rules about what's going to keep you safe um but yeah i had a friend um in london and when over over the european summer when travel was possible between the uk and france they drove from london they drove their car onto the train and then drove their car off the train at the other side straight to the house that they had in the south of france and then they'd basically traveled there in a little covid safe bubble um and there they, they just hung out in at the house, went to the market, just kept very distant and had a lovely French holiday and then drove their car back onto the train and went back to London. So it's interesting. <laughs> yeah, we and, you know, it's a fabulous situation to be able to do that. But that's like I, I really – it is a bit of concern, I think, for tourism. I mean, France is one of the most visited – well, it was the, the most visited place in the world. I think it's something like 90 million people visited um, – had uh, international tourists came to France in 2019, um, 36 million or something to Paris. Um, I mean, more people go up the Eiffel Tower every year. I love saying this. More people go up the Eiffel Tower than actually international visitors to Australia. And when I say international, not, not tourists, that's international visitors. So that includes expats coming back. It includes people coming for business. Uh, it includes the New Zealanders going backwards and forwards. So more people go up the Eiffel Tower every year than, than visit Australia um, as international tourists or as, as internationals. So when you think about the restaurants and the bistros and all of that in Paris, let alone anywhere else in France, Without those people coming, um, you know, it's sort of like, it's sort of like thinking of Australia, um, and many people have mentioned on your podcast before about, uh, you know, domestic tourism is great and it's amazing that it's being revived there, but you can't rely on that. It's not, it's not going to fill the numbers that the international tourist had before, um, and that is the case here. I mean, you know, people coming from the UK that have homes here are never going to fill the numbers, especially of people like the Chinese um, uh, coming, um, you know, other European nations being able to come, Americans coming to France. I mean, there's such big numbers of, of people and there's so many places in Paris. I mean, you've um, spoken to Di from Hardware Society, amazing cafe. They can't open until the 9th of July, um, sorry, 9th of June, because they don't have that outside space. Um, when they do open, they're going to be limited to people. So is that going to be, are they going to be able to afford that um, to open at that time? I don't know. And there's so many places in Paris. I know after the first lockdown, I went back uh, to Paris to go, um, uh, visit a dentist. I should say that they do have doctors and dentists in the French countryside. I don't know. <laughs> but I, I just seem com more comfortable in going to the ones in Paris um, for some reason. I, I think that's the expat in me. Um, but um, I went back to uh, Paris. So many places were closed after that first lockdown, just permanently. Um, 
So there's such a hole, uh, such a gap in that market now. And I just wonder how that's going to affect food and, and the French food scene going forward. One of the things that we've seen in many different countries as restaurants have reopened is that staffing has become a massive issue and it's certainly, you know, the biggest topic in Australia and it's certainly in the US. I know also in the UK they're having a lot of trouble because so many um, hospitality professionals returned to their home countries in Europe. I know that France has kept, um, has had, you know, reasonable programs for employees Um to, you know, reasonable income support. Do you, what are you hearing from people about staffing of rest, restaurants in France? So two different stories, and it's more about um, the French countryside to the, the, the city. So in the major cities, they're having the same problems as uh, everywhere else that I've heard and mentioned, that they're really, um, they've been able to keep on key people but they've lost people and they've lost people um, not just because of um, they've lost people, not just because they have had uh, no, you know, internationals going through visas, um, you know, international students, all of those sort of things that people did work in, in cafes and restaurants before um, the pandemic. It's not just that they've lost because of those numbers. They've also lost because a lot of people have been paid during this time. They were getting remuneration from the government um, and it was quite good. They were going on a partial, they call it a chômage. And so there was a partial chômage um, in place for people to keep them employed and keep them um, uh, going over that time, specifically for re- businesses that were forced to close. So the government said no restaurants open, so they did get payment for their for staff. But many people that were getting that payment were going, well, I'm getting paid, I'm sitting at home, what can I do? And a lot of them have, even though they've been getting paid, have gone and changed careers and gone, well, you know, why a lot of chefs are going, well, why work in a, in a bistro um, in Paris, full on, just, you know, getting, yep, getting decent pay but working really horrible hours when I could get just paid a little bit less and work in a local hospital or work in a, you know, a nursing home, et cetera, and be the chef there. And a lot of people have, have done that. They've gone um, their lifestyle over the amount that they're going to get paid. So that's a bit of a change. And then here in the countryside, we've got a, a, a restaurant literally at the front of our door, um, and uh, a very nice one, actually. It's, uh, he's aiming to get a Michelin star. Um, he, it's part of a hotel. They have uh, 22 staff, all from the local area, and they still have 22 staff. They haven't laid anybody off, but they're not open, and they won't be open until the 6th of June. They have a terrace, but they just can't afford to put the for half the people that they could fit in the terrace it's just not worth them opening so they're waiting until um until the 9th of june to do that but they've still got that um that staffing on there so it's a strange one it's sort of like when you go out and things are open people are there and they're shopping and they're buying things and everybody says that the economy is not doing well and but people are out there buying things it's because they've all been supported by the government um so in that regards it's great but then if you're a business owner and you want to open and make money you can't 
um, and there's all these barriers, you can't open because you don't have a terrace space. Uh, you can't open because even if you open, you're still only going to get half the amount of people in. Um, it's a hard situation for them. I, I really... I really do feel for them and, and worry about that. It's, yeah, I mean, it's just so much the flavour of France and, you know, regional France, you know, every town and during every season with its specialties. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about the part of France that you're in, Andrew? Yes, yeah, so we're in, um, we moved to the Vienne. Um, uh, interesting enough, we moved here on the, the first day of confinement. Um, we were travelling around Brittany, um, having a, a good old time, waiting for our house to settle. And uh, then they announced the confinement and we thought, well, we should maybe come here. So we came on the first day of confinement and rented a little place, um, Peter and I and uh, the dog. And, um, and it was completely dead and uh, there was just nobody here uh, for three months and then it livened up after the first confinement was over. But um, we live in, so it's Montmorillon and it's the Vienne department and I sort of, it's sort of on the edge of what they call the food bowl for France. So um, it's about two and a half hours from Paris on the train. So we get amazing produce um, here at the markets, even better than uh, many of the, I mean, Paris markets are amazing and, and just markets in general in France are amazing. But we do get a lot of stuff here and uh, a lot of great food. Um, there's a lot of uh, really fabulous uh, goat's cheese from this region. And, uh, yeah, food, it's just, uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's a never-ending subject. I could go on about it for ages. But Montmorillon is uh, right back for 40 minutes from a local town called Poitiers. And uh, I'm looking out my window at the Hotel Dieu, uh, which I didn't pronounce properly, but uh, the French will forgive me if they're listening, I'm sure. And uh, it's got a future project by Jean Rubichon's uh, family um, being planned for it. So, again, it was put off by the pandemic um, because they had a lot of uh, Chinese and overseas investors. So they're trying to find new investment for it, but um, it's still going ahead and it's supposed to be a international um, cooking school for chefs that um, has three, fa three phases to it. One is for chefs that want to increase their skills to become Michelin star level. Um, and the next uh, part of it is to house and uh, teach uh, people that are looking for employment in the hospitality industry, whether they be refugees or unemployed, etc., um, to give them the skills to do that. Oh, and then also they have um, a element of. Uh, it being a international tourism site. So, you know, somewhere where people can come and, and cook similar to Le Cordon Bleu, et cetera. So, Andrew, we've talked a lot about what other people's businesses are going through and what they're doing, but tell us about your business. How have you pivoted and reconfigured your food tourism side of things? Yeah, so, well, I mean, I started in Melbourne after MasterChef. I started doing walking tours and um, because of, well, partly because I um, of the way I left MasterChef, uh, which was that um, after hurting my knee. So I thought doing exercise and food and the doctor said I'd never be a chef um, standing all day. So I started walking tours there and then part of the reason for coming here was to do um, to do tours of France, so to do food tours of France. And in 2000, 
the last one I had was 2019, so just before the pandemic, and it was a very successful one down at the Cote d'Azur um, for seven nights. And that was – I was on a high from that and planning more. And the idea was that, yes, we would come here and have uh, – um, do cooking – rather than having other people's cooking classes uh, in my tour, that I would do them myself and, um, and incorporate a cooking class type tour in this area. And um, that was why we bought where we bought and the house that we bought and what we were going to do. And obviously the pandemic just changed all of that. So I have, it's been a bit tough. I started doing videos online um, and then uh, moved that into doing cooking classes online. Um, but I mean, you know, it's all about when you do things online, it's all about the presence really. And if that's the only way you can get, yourself out there um you're competing with so many other people so it's been tough we you know but we always no matter what i do i always see that there's a uh something at the end that will you know it'll work out in the end and um i'm sure it will and i'm sure eventually i'll be able to have people come here and do classes uh here i don't know about the tours anymore that is something that i'm a bit hesitant about doing um just having being responsible for people and being responsible for other people as well uh it's not just the people on the tour but the idea of going to places and you know what if possibly somebody on the tour had COVID and we didn't know um and then passed it on to other people that's a concern for me and i just don't know about that and um i with all of my tours I, I really like them to be a personal experience i really like everybody that we go to i've been to before um i have a relationship with whether it's the hotel that we use or the accommodation we use the driver um uh, and all of the all of the um operators that we go to they're all people that i know and i have built up relationships with so that's yeah i some of them aren't going to be there anymore and I don't know, that's a, it's a big thing for me to, and it's also a big expense to go back and find new places uh, just because, you know, we've had COVID and they're not operating anymore. So I don't know, we'll see. Um, I do hope that we can, in 2022, welcome people here from Australia, and, um, but we'll just have to wait and see. I'm, I'm, I don't know. I don't know what the future holds, Maybe I might just, uh, you know, might be just uh, open up a little cafe in town and uh, and um, sell French coffee. Oh no, I couldn't do that. <laughs> well, that sounds very charming. But it, it sort of makes me think of you know someone who's been in a bomb shelter and you know they can hear that the the bombing is over and they tentatively creep out and and like survey the destruction. That's that's the feeling I'm getting as you as you speak. You know about these restaurants that you love and got to know and just to to, to find out that they're not there anymore. It's it is going to be really hard to um to re-enter the world and make something of it. I really, I really feel for you. Um, but I know that, you know, from our experience here and it's, you know, it's, it's very different, but similar in some ways that you just couldn't imagine things being normal again. And lo and behold, things are changed, but, but there is so much 
more normal life going on in Australia right now. And, you know, Melbourne particularly, you know, we had a really long, tough lockdown and it didn't feel like things could be normal, but, you know, they're pretty normal. Who knows what the future holds? Um, I think that, yeah, I think that also like it's, it, it is a bit different for us because we are expats and especially Australian expats. I mean, I, you know, we're having a bit of a, a tough time with the Australian government. Um, you know, we, uh, it's a bit hard to get back. Uh, I think that, you know, I, I, I've heard stories of, um, you know, people, it's, it's costing them you know, for thousands and thousands of euros to get back. Um, and that's just a huge expense that you just, you know, it's just not feasible. It was, I mean, I think that um, because uh, both my my parents are not around anymore, um, but uh, Peter's, my um, husband's parents are both in Australia. And we thought, well, what happens if one of, if something happens to one of them, heaven forbid, that, um he has to go back and it was going to cost something like a one stage was going to cost something like 15,000 euro just to return. Um, not even to, as, as a single, not even a return trip. Um, that's the airfare and the quarantine, etc. Um, and that's just something that's just not feasible uh, at this time. And, um, so that's an extra worry. And I do think, yeah, we look, we look at Australia from over here. I definitely, there's a lot of people on things like, you know, um, social media groups, et cetera, that talk about this. And uh, we look at Australia and we think, yeah, it's amazing and how lucky are we, are we to, you know, for everyone back in, back home. Um, but it is a concern. Like what happens if something happened to us over here? We just can't come back. Um, you know, it's just... Uh, yeah, it's terrible. It's just a terrible situation. Um, and there are so many people struggling uh with that and in really perilous situations, I, I, I really hope that you don't have any urgent, um, you know, emergencies like you're talking about, but even just, you know, to come back and see people, or, you know, um, just to come back because you feel like it because after all, you know, you're a citizen. Yeah, and we have that, you have that in your mind, but then you also look at, the news and see what's happening in India. And I've heard your fabulous, like last that week that you had everybody from India was amazing um, talking about that. And you go, well, you know, we're not in as bad a situation as that. And to be saying that we have 19,000 cases a day and to look at another country and go, well, we're not as bad as that. And we're not in as bad a situation as uh, the poor Australians in India that literally aren't allowed to come back. Um, it's not that they can come back, but they might have to wait, you know, eight, nine months to do it. Like a few friends of ours know, it's just that they, there was a stage there where they were facing the prospect that they just couldn't come back. And that's just a, that's just amazing to me. I mean, I think, you know, do you think that we would have believed it if you'd said uh, two years ago that this is what was going to happen? You wouldn't have believed it. It's just a really ridiculous movie script that just would have been shredded, burnt, trashed, laughed out of town, and yet here we are. <laughs> um, Andrew, it's been so great to have the opportunity to talk to you and hear how things are in France at the moment. I really hope that um, those case numbers go down, the vaccination numbers go up and that things reopen safely and that you're able to be part of it um, before too long. But thank you so much for listening to the podcast and now being part of it. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on Dirty Linen.
No, oh, thank you, Denny. And look, I'll have a bottle of wine here and some cheese here waiting for you um, and uh, some of the uh, plum jam that I've made as well, plum chutney that I've made uh, to go with it. Oh, my goodness. I am so there for all of that. So, yeah, keep, keep my name on it. <laughs> Hopefully we'll see you soon. Um, thank you so much. I hope so. Take care. Thanks, Denny. This is Dirty Linen and I'm Danny Vallant. We air the issues that the hospitality industry finds hard to talk about. We spend a week thrashing around each issue, hearing from different people with unique perspectives. We want to hear from you as well. If you have something that needs to be said about a topic, get in touch so we can include your perspective. Contact us at dirtylinen at deepintheweeds.com.au or hit us up on Insta at Dirty Linen Podcast. We can't wait to hear from you. This.